Hello and welcome to the AI Coffee Hour with Brainpool AI. I'm your host, Dominic Richmond, and I have the fantastic job of running a community of over 500 experts in artificial intelligence. Each episode, I'll be sitting down with a member of our network to discuss everything from commercialization to ethics of artificial intelligence over a nice coffee. Today, we are talking to AI consultant and CEO of the Tesseract Academy, Stylianos Kampakis. An educator in his own right, Salianus offers business leaders training and expertise in approaching development of artificial intelligence solutions. He takes us through how everyone, from school-aged children right up to CEOs, can educate themselves to prepare for embracing this technology as we are joined for an hour of AI and coffee. Hello and welcome to episode three of the AI Coffee Hour with Brainpool AI. Today we are sitting down with uh, Stalianos Kampakis. Am I saying your, right, your name correctly there? Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, how are you, Stalianos? Yeah, doing well. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good myself. Um, and we normally start these things by say, asking our guests what they are drinking and they brought a coffee along, given that we are the AI Coffee Hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we find out that most people haven't brought a coffee along. Have you got a coffee or? I'll disappoint you. It's green tea. <laughs> oh, green tea. Green tea does the job. I'm a big fan yeah. to a, to a chill green tea. I'm on um I'm on some sort of uh, supermarket brand squash. Um, yeah. So you know we're both we're both letting the side down a little bit. Uh, fantastic. So you're here to talk to us a little bit about uh, AI education and mm. what technology and AI solutions providers can do to really get the message of artificial intelligence out there and perhaps make it a little bit clearer. So I think the best place to start is with the next generation or the youngest people. So the big question really is, are the next generation all destined to become coders? Uh, yes, I think. Uh, maybe not, let's say, not professional coders per se, but I mean, think about it. Um, in the last month, how many times did you use pen and paper? Most people will say not that many. Right, so you're doing most of your, you know, the, the things you want to do on your phone or, or your personal computer. And I think that coding is going to become a, an important lesson in, in schools, uh, maybe even from an early age. And I think that there are basically two dynamics at play here. One is that computers are playing a more and more important part in, in our lives. You know, it's, uh, was it last week or two weeks ago? I remember when Facebook, uh, when Zuckerberg announced about Meta. Uh, so, so the future is definitely going to be more virtual than it is now. And secondly, the other dynamic is that coding is actually becoming easier now. There, for example, no code platforms which help you create code without having to really properly code. So I think a basic understanding of computer operations is, yeah, it's, it's going to be, let's say, a, a requirement for someone to be considered literate, much like reading and writing is considered now. Fantastic. I think the new coding being the new reading and writing is is a great way forward. I think that is definitely true for the future. How do you think that's going to impact the future of jobs? We talk a lot about automation completely changing the way we work. We've probably seen technology save us during the pandemic, really, when everybody was locked up indoors. Um, but no one really seems to know what the future of work is. Uh, how do you think this new generation coding is going to change that? Um, I think the future of work is definitely going to include humans working alongside algorithms. Uh, so I'm not sure if algorithms is going to replace every jobs, uh, but you know, like 90s, 
Okay, so professionals like, you know, in the design space, in anything relating to, to video, you know, they're using Photoshop. Same thing with audio, right? Uh, whereas music recordings, they used to happen in an analog way. In the 90s, we saw the rise of digital audio workstations, for those of you who are like music enthusiasts. It's, and also, you know, we used to have typewriters in the 70s, not so much anymore. So this is just the next evolution. So now we're going to have, instead of having, let's say, people to write content, we'll have people who write content while being helped by a computer. And this help might be on giving you ideas, uh, curating content from the internet, and having a human decide on what's more, most relevant or not, this sort of thing. So I believe that's a pretty positive development. Many people are like, oh, we're going to lose our jobs. Blah, blah, blah. Well, I think that it's actually going to make people more productive because every time you deal with certain tasks, um, there's the, 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 there are some subtasks within those tasks which most people would rather not have to deal with. So, for example, in, in photography, you in the old days, you had to wait quite a few hours to actually see your pictures and you had only let's say 30 or 32 pictures or on a, on a standard camera of how many they were i'm old enough to remember those days uh, going to paris when i was 18 and i had like 32 pictures i could take in a day and i had to choose this wisely that's no longer the case right and uh, i can't really say that i'm a romantic and i kind of like reminisce those days and i'm like oh you know i should be able to take only 30 pictures with my phone in a single day <laughs> you know no one cares yeah. And I think as, as technology like plays a larger, larger role in our lives, uh, what was what initially seems seems like a luxury, then it kind of becomes a need, right? And you kind of take this for for granted. Uh, it's the same with Google Maps, and you know, not many people are using real maps any longer. Uh, and this is what's going to happen, yeah. With uh, this is what's going to happen, in, I think, in most professional fields. Completely. I think it's easy to see how we will be more efficient and effective as people working in conjunction with technology. You don't think there's going to be any you know, hipsters 20, 30 years from now who <laughs> insist that using maps is the, like an actual map is the new vinyl or something along those lines? Uh, you never know, because you know, in society, we've always seen trends uh, swing like a pendulum. Uh, you go from the, the hippies all the, in the 60s, all the way to corporate greed in, in the 80s. Um, so now we're seeing a massive, and, and, and you know, the millennial generation, so this massive wave against, let's say, ownership and having a career. Uh, maybe the next generation will be more career-oriented. And I wouldn't be surprised if in 30 years people becoming, you know, there are certain types of people. I wouldn't call them Luddites, but people who maybe they do, want, do not want to be short touched to technology. But that's more of a lifestyle choice because I think when someone will actually have to carry out their professional activities, they will have to use this, right? So I understand why someone might not want to be in front of the computer or the phone all day long, right? Uh, but I doubt that someone who is lost is not going to prefer using Google Maps over buying a, a map from, you know, from some tourist shop. Completely. I think that question of lifestyle choices is a very important one because now we're seeing technology being so essential to people's lives and it's disrupting industries where people have been working uh, with the same technology for 20, 30, even 40 years. Sometimes people's whole professional lives, they haven't seen any of this technology. 
Um, as business leaders see this emerging changes with artificial intelligence revolutionizing their industries, how do you think is the best way for them to adapt? Or at least what's the first steps that they should be taking? Uh, well, I think that every leader these days needs to be data literate. Uh, and that's this term will probably mean something different uh, as years go by. It's like saying, oh, I'm computer literate. So I don't think that anyone will now use this term seriously. 20 years ago, they would, right? So computer literacy was a thing. Now, computers are everywhere. And it's going to be the same with data. I was talking with a specialist in data privacy a few days ago. He was telling me about all these different regulations and the work he's doing. And if an organization now uh, is digital and all organizations have some kind of digital presence or online presence, then you're going to collect data and you most likely have to look into data privacy issues. So I realized that data privacy is probably the first domain where data literacy was actually required from a legal perspective. Uh, but then we'll start seeing this concept expand as more and more industries and, and companies start adopting AI. So then it will be a requirement to, uh, for any business that takes itself seriously to at least know how to use data, how to handle data, and so on and so forth. Um, and I think that the key is, is education uh, and probably education like on a high level. So I'm not saying that business leaders have to become data scientists, much like I'm not suggesting that if a leader wants to be computer literate, they really need to, to understand computer science and data structures or how circuits work, right? Uh, but you do need to feel comfortable with this concept. So I, I remember like five, six years ago speaking sometimes to leaders and usually you might get this with more senior leaders uh, who are of a certain age and they didn't really grow up with technology that much and they didn't really want to talk about data. They were afraid of terms like machine learning or AI. So now this is somewhat unacceptable because it's not just, um, it, you know, it, it's, it's not like some thing that you can kind of ignore and hope it goes away because more and more companies start doing this. So inevitably you have to do that. It's like saying, uh, you know, it's like being in 20 years ago and saying, oh, I don't want a website. Maybe there were some businesses that had a website back then. I don't think that anyone like really would debate this now. And again, I, go, I keep going back and forth um, between 2095 and, and now, 2021, uh, because I think this kind of patterns uh, show up in history again and again. And by studying the history of innovation and technology, uh, we can really understand what the future trends are going to look like. Uh, and this is, again, where education plays a key role. Completely. I think that pendulum is a very important thing um, because we can see that the trends, you know, the technology was different, sure, but the way it's being used and rolled out seems to be more or less the mm -hmm. same. Um, can you perhaps talk a little bit about your work and how you approach this uh, when you speak to decision makers and you run uh, events and training workshops? Yes, Absolutely. Um, so as you, as you know, I've been working in what I call data science and AI for decision makers in the last few years, and I've also written up a book on that topic. And I think that's a very exciting and interesting topic uh, because it's really the leaders that first have to buy in the concept of AI uh, before uh, the rest of the organization really uh, adopts this, these new approaches. Uh, and the way I like to approach this kind of topic is, first of all, to try and find a balance between explaining 
these kind of concepts in a high level, but not so high that you actually feel that you're dilute, diluting the whole concept, right? So you, there's this fine balance between uh, the technical, the business level, and I try to find this balance, and then I'm a big fan of formalizing some of the concepts and approaches. And by formalizing, what I mean by that? Um, so pro software develop project management is software development a few years, uh, let's say, Again, in the past, let's say 30 years ago, was probably a bit chaotic. And then things like Scrum and Agile uh, came into the scene. And, and now they are pretty much everywhere. I think something similar is going to happen with data privacy, data strategy, uh, with AI ethics, uh, with all of these concepts. And I see as an important part of my work, formalizing those concepts uh, in a way, putting these into frameworks. And that's why I also wrote a, a book. Because this really helps leaders navigate this landscape. Because quite often, when someone is exposed to new ideas, they see all these different possibilities, and then they're like, "Okay, now what?" Cool. Can you say? Can you tell us the name of your book? Yeah, uh, it's called uh, "Data Science for Decision Makers." Um, no, actually, sorry. This this is the theme. The actual name of the book is "The Decision Makers Handbook to Data Science," and then the subtitle is uh, "A Guide for Non-Technical uh, Executives, uh, Managers, and, and Leaders." Perfect. So you talk about this framework for uh, decision makers. What does that look like in terms of preparing organizations for developing AI? We've seen a lot of companies, some are better at adopting new technologies. Finance has been a great trailblazer in taking on AI solutions, but then there are some that are lagging behind slightly, might we say, like construction, perhaps some logistics organizations. What do you have to do in terms of practices, infrastructure, changing your culture to adopt this new technology? Yeah, I think that the main, uh, the most important factor is culture. So there's just some organizations that are more open to change, the more enthusiastic about technology and numbers, the other organizations which are less so, and this is the way things are. Uh, obviously, every, any organization can take those steps to change, but some industries are always going to be ahead of the technology curve, right? And either due to the background of the people involved or there's the general culture of that vertical. Uh, that being said, usually organizations change when they see other similar organizations to them doing similar things. And uh, this can, and then the first steps to change can either include, in some cases, uh, a champion, as I call them, someone who is really uh, believes in the approach and they try to convince everyone that they should go for this new approach or it might involve like a senior leader buying into the whole concept and then you know taking a completely new strategic direction um, but I think that I, mean, I, don't, I can't really quote any stats on this but this champion seems to be something that uh, I've seen happening in the majority of the cases because it's usually middle management that's, um, that might be closer to this fine line between business and technology, and they might be more open to new approaches, new methods, new techniques. But they also have the, let's say, the cloud to actually, you know, pull the right uh, levers and start making things work inside the company. Uh, the senior leaders usually, they, they're far away from technology. The bigger they're an organization, the more prominent this, this, this pattern. And uh, they might not even really have the bandwidth to, to try and catch up with most, most recent trends. To what extent do you think those, you know, we, we've seen a lot of 
what we call the the buzzword problem, where a lot of companies will come to you and say, oh, I want AI because, and you go, why do you want AI? And they say, well, because we've heard it's a great thing, but don't really have any clear picture of what they want. And that can open you up to being sold quite a bad product sometimes if you don't have a good solutions provider or not considering further issues like these ethical ramifications of artificial intelligence. Um, To what extent do you think um, well, I would call them ambassadors, you call them champions. Um, to what extent are those people going to help protect against that buzzword problem? Uh, I think it's not easy uh, because this is the way technology and services are sold most of the time. Uh, it's something that is happening on many different levels, primarily at the level of the big four and the big consulting firms. Um, and they do this because it works. Uh, so if other businesses or professionals try to survive in this landscape, they will inevitably have to use the same terminology. Obviously, uh, leaders who are more educated on that front, they will inevitably understand where the value lies and where the hype lies and all that. That being said, um, yeah, it's th- this, is the, this is the way things are. I mean, I had people attend my workshops and then say, oh, now I understand what's the difference between AI and machine learning. Now I understand how these terms are used in in a marketing context or when vendors promote their solutions. So obviously this this is helpful, demystifying the the jargon. But unfortunately, I don't see this going away anytime soon. Fair play. So on the other end of that spectrum then, to what extent do you see solutions providers and technological professionals like yourself as educators as well as business people? Yeah, I I think that... um, I'm, I like this role and like being an educator uh, and, you know, most, most of my work is in pure data science and research and development, but a significant part of my work is that of an educator. And as I mentioned, threading this fine line between technology and, and business, uh, obviously not all data scientists want to take up this role, but I do think that more and more data scientists um, are kind of forced into taking some aspects at least of that role within their organizations as they move up the seniority ladder simply because it's um, when you're a data scientist you are working with something which is intangible not always easy to understand and in one way or another you have to do something that adds value to the organization you work for um, so inevitably uh, you have to prove how that intangible thing actually translates into improved KPIs. Yeah, uh, It's not like software, which is more visible in a sense, in, in, in most cases. And this means that many data scientists, whether they like it or not, as they climb up the seniority ladder and they get closer to the C-suite, they have to become better at communication. Uh, they have to become better at breaking down ideas and concepts in a way that anyone can understand them. And it and I think it might actually become a requirement of, of the role in the near future. I do think that I've seen some job ads saying that, oh, if you want to look work for us as a data scientist, you also need to be good in communicating results. Uh, um, but obviously, it takes two to tango, right? So obviously, data scientists need to be better at communicating results. But if a leader doesn't want to put in the work to really understand what data science is, then this is not going to work. And that's why, I, you know, I do the work that I do, because it, 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 it usually it, it takes like two people. And, you know, when you hire a team, uh, you should expect that the organization, your organization should 
also be ready to absorb the steam, right? And they should have the right processes in place. They should, they should have the right strategic vision. Uh, it's more complex than saying, well, let's get the data scientist to work. It's magic. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I can understand that. It's the, the takes two to tango is definitely true because it's quite easy for there to be a bit of a disconnect between technical and non-technical people. How do you think the best way for technical non the non-technical decision makers in a company, what do you think is the best way for them to verbalize the kind of questions they have in order to get to the right answers? Because I think that's a very difficult issue when you're trying. It's, it's like when you're calling up IT support and you're going, oh, well, I've got a problem with my computer and that doesn't really give you any information uh, whatsoever. Uh, how do we find a way of asking the right questions yeah that's a great point um i think this again goes back to education and frameworks so i think that the leaders need to have the right framework to understand how to pose the right questions and there are many different steps to using such framework first of all it is important to understand what is possible with machine learning with data science with ai then after you understand what's possible it's important to understand what uh, how to communicate this to a data scientist and how this can tie in with a company's KPIs. Yeah. Uh, so I think all these aspects are are very important uh, when a leader wants to communicate. I mean, I would say communicate data science, but communicate with data scientists. Right? And uh, this, this, this potentially might even be a, a skill, a requirement for managers in the near future in certain industries. Right? But much like you know how to work with software developers, you know how to work with data scientists. Um, so there must be this level of understanding. Completely. And then on the other side of it, what, how can, is, is it a question of framework for technological people as well? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of uh, people who would not understand phrases like, oh, I have to go to the back end or even what AWS stands for, or API. Um, how do we therefore translate these very complex technologies into a way that the layman can understand? Uh, I think it's the same principles, right? Um, so there are different ways to break it down. Uh, one is understand it on a high level, technical but high level. Then the other um, aspects of it to understand is how do you choose between those different options, right? How do you choose between AWS and Azure? Uh, is it cost? Is it how easy it is to hire someone to work with these technologies? Is it the ease of use? Um, and this is, and the decision maker doesn't need to have hands-on experience with these things in order to understand these trade-offs, but rather they need to have some basic understanding that these trade-offs exist, gather opinions on that matter, and then it's probably the job of a chief information officer to to really deal with the procurement of, of such uh, services and, and software. But again, I think this high-level understanding is uh, is invaluable and it goes back to the whole concept of technical literacy computer literacy uh, data literacy um, as technology advances there's there are more and more requirements uh, educational requirements that are placed upon leaders and i think it's an inevitability that in some ways the past was easier let's say uh, in the sense that now obviously we enjoy faster internet more services uh, but Let's say, again, 20 years ago, you could just download a list of emails. You didn't have to care about data privacy. You could just start sending out emails, right? You can no longer do that 
I mean, just the way things are, things become more and more uh, complex. And this pushes, this applies pressure in businesses in two ways. Leaders have to become more familiar with many more things. And then at the same time, we also witness what I call over-specialization. Uh, the term product manager, for example, is, is, is a very good example of this. Right? So product managers is a very good profession, uh, fairly new, right? So uh, it's, it's, it's not necessarily the CEO now who deals with, with product. The CEO has to do other types of stuff in, uh, in a company like, like raise investment, for example. Um, and, and really, I think we're going to see more of these, uh, more of these trends in, in the near future, more of a specialization but also more pressure on leaders to have a larger breadth of, uh, of knowledge. It seems as though each stakeholder needs to know a level that's, that's relevant for them then. Um, you know, the technological people can know everything that needs to be known about the technology and how to build it, but for the decision makers, it's a question of business impact. Is that correct? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, I think that the breadth of knowledge is going to become an important requirement and there's going to be massive FOMO in businesses. That is, someone else is doing something, we need to be doing this uh, as well. Um, and uh, this will inevitably increase because now there are so many things going on in technology that it just becomes very difficult to track of everything that's going on. Uh, the blockchain space being a prime example, I do some work in this space. and. Uh, it's, it's, it's insane the pace at, at which this thing it moves and it moves not only through and another challenge with technology is that it doesn't always you know move forward through uh, let's say very cleanly written academic papers and um, let's say very nicely done reports uh, or very well documented APIs in the space of blockchain many things move through telegram groups and discord groups and there uh, some technical papers thrown around the web. And now we're talking about AI. Uh, can you imagine what's going to happen if uh, blockchain is also a requirement for, you know, most leaders. Most leaders have to also become familiar uh, with this space and they have to understand what are, let's say, the benefits of Polkadot versus Ethereum or Solana. And we're like, nah, we're not there yet. Well, I mean, think about the 90s uh, operating systems. Right. So a leader had to make an informed choice around whether they would go for Linux or, or Windows. And uh, now there are just more decisions that are piling up. More decisions for decision makers. Yeah, yeah exactly. I could, <laughs> I could uh, feel the pain there. I just want to circle back to uh, talking about product managers as a mm -hmm. as a over-specialization, I think is the term that you use. Yeah. Um, how much do you see them as almost the archetype job role for your champions of AI adoption, the people who can act as that bridge mm -hmm. and understand everything there is to know about the piece of technology that they're working on. Yeah, yeah. I, I do kind of think that uh, product managers can be some kind of professional bridge maker in this type of sense, because uh, they deal with hands-on aspects, but not technical aspects. Uh, and they also communicate with uh, both technology and, and business at the same time. And I recently learned about the existence of a new role, the data product manager, so a product manager with a data-related background who specializes in data products, which is a specialization of, of, of another specialization, right? Uh, but I do agree with you that product managers can essentially play this, uh, play this bridge very well, yeah. 
Lynn's role very well. Perfect. And then we've talked a lot about frameworks so far, um, particularly from, I think having a holistic framework is really important, one that covers all spectrums of mm. business. And we've spoken a little bit about the people who would be impacted and can carry out this framework. Mm. How much do you feel that these are bespoke to each organization? Or is it a question of, you know, one general framework fits all? Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me that, you know, we've talked about a range of technologies so far from AI, mm -hmm. machine learning, blockchain. Um, one framework surely cannot fit every single company. Yeah, I mean, the framework is just a starting point. I think you can have a, a general framework uh, for every organization and then they can start working with it and specialize it. Uh, and I think that's fine, right? So there are many, uh, I've, I've worked in many projects where we followed the principles of Scrum, but we've not really followed, um, you know, Scrum in, in a religious way that, oh, no, this is exactly the way you should be doing these standards and, you know, and so on and so forth. And that's fine. I mean, frameworks are just tools to help organizations improve their efficiency. They're not something that should be binding in any, in any way. Unless it's a legal requirement, that's different. I mean, if, you, if you're applying ISO 27,000, you know, in one, then that's something different. Completely. It's, uh, it's more of a guideline then, than concrete framework, other than maybe on things like GDPR and fairly uh, larger regulations. Um, how do you, how, in your work, how do you go about building these things up? Is it just a question of building up, uh, bringing together a range of stakeholders uh, who would be involved or... We've talked a little bit about culture previously and ensuring that that, mm -hmm. that culture is a major factor in developing AI. Is it a factor in uh, that you need to consider when building a framework or guidelines for your for your own company? Uh, I think it's a good idea to consider a framework because a framework simply uh, summarizes the experience of many iterations of the same thing in the past, and then after. Uh, many iterations, we kind of see these patterns and we're like, oh, this is what we've observed, this is what can go wrong, this is what, when, when things go well, and these are like the guidelines, right? And that's really the way to do it. I think that many professionals, they have these mental frameworks in their heads, is that they're not explicitly written down. And I'm sure that even, you know, before the very frameworks and standards were released, whether it's Scrum Agile or something else, many people were implicitly working with this type of frameworks, but they didn't really like know it themselves. They just had these internalized somehow. Perfect. I think, uh, I think that's a very good point to end on here. Uh, looking at today, we've looked at quite a lot of stuff, I think, and, and covered it quite nicely, uh, with how a range of stakeholders from well, not the children aren't necessarily stakeholders, but the next generation of stakeholders can develop AI technology and what we can do today to build frameworks, guidelines, and to build better technology. Um, so uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, where can people find you? Well, you can find me on my personal website, the datascientist.com. Uh, and feel free to reach out to me if you want a PDF copy of my book, The Decision Maker's Handbook to Data Science. Fantastic. Do you want to plug anything else, like uh, Data Science London? Uh, oh, yeah, obviously. Yeah. We also run a, a meetup. Actually, I ran quite a few meetups in, in London, the biggest one being Data Science London. If you just go on meetups, uh, you're going to find it. And if you're interested in blockchain and AI, creativity, NFTs, we also run a meetup about that called the AI and Blockchain and Creativity Meetup in, in London. Uh, for now, we... We run virtually. Uh, hope to get back to in-person or hybrid events in 2022. 
Perfect. Silas, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you being on episode three of the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Dominic. Perfect. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for the AI Coffee Hour. If you're interested in discovering a little more about AI, then why not take a minute to check out our other episodes? Or if you're ready to take the next steps on your AI journey, why not contact us at contact at brainpool.ai to find out what AI can do for your business.